Acts chapter 27. We'll start in verse 41, and we'll be reading into chapter 28. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim jump overboard first and make for land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that we were all brought safely to land. 28.1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, we put them on the fire a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Well, I want to just say a word of thanks before we get into this passage, a thanks to, to Connor Fath for preaching last week. Great example of bringing the word, so grateful for his training and skill in doing that. Thank you, Connor. Also for his singing skill as he sang the, the, the little song that he sang to Bill, I think was, uh, was, it warmed my heart and we sang it for the rest of the day. Also to my friend Connor Haas who brought the word two weeks before that. It was a great chance for me to recharge and sit in the pews and receive from solid biblical teachers a chance in that way. But as we return now to the book of Acts, we come back to a previously in the book of Acts portion, our little refresher of where we've been in our little Netflix binge of the book of Acts for this last year. We find ourselves after the Apostle Paul had a 15-year church planting tour, 15 years of a season of church planting, and at the end of that, he finds himself in Jerusalem. He's arrested by the, the temple guard, uh, and as this riot breaks out, the Romans come down, they take Paul into custody, and Paul has a chance to defend himself, to offer a defense, an apologia, a defense, and bear witness to testify about Jesus to the, the, uh, not only the, the Jewish leaders of that day, but also to the Roman governor as he's transferred to Caesarea, as well as the Jewish king of that day, Agrippa, and his sister Bernice. 
Paul is now, as we come upon it, being sent to Rome to testify not before a Jewish king or before a Roman governor, but before the Roman emperor. He's found to be a citizen of Rome, and so now he's being sent under the guardianship of a centurion. And Luke is showing how it needs to be fulfilled at Paul's encounter with Jesus in Acts chapter 9, where it says of Paul, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul is being sent to Rome, and the, and the trip is eventful, is it not? The trip is eventful. It's a couple of ships. Paul is traveling as a prisoner with a centurion and other soldiers and other prisoners. They get on a grain ship that's bound to Rome, and because of the prevailing winds, they miss their winter port in Crete, and they get caught in a storm for over two weeks. Can't see the sun, can't see the moon, can't see the stars, rolling on pitches, no, no way to navigate. They are just being blown. And after days of seasickness, you can imagine, and disorientation at sea, it says this in verse 20, when neither sun or stars appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It was not a good time. So Paul steps up as a prisoner on this boat full of 276 people. He steps up and he says some encouraging things. He also says, I told you so. I told you we should have stopped. You guys have never experienced that on a road trip. I told you we should have stopped at that last stop. Thank you very much. That has never happened to anybody here. But it's a short I told you so because then Paul just starts encouraging them. Look, the Lord sent an angel, a messenger. The Lord knows we're here. The Lord says we're going to be saved. Everybody, if we all stick together, we are going to be saved. And then Paul breaks bread with the 276 people on the ship. They spot land, they run the ship aground on the beach, and this is where we picked up our reading today. The ship wrecks on a reef. All the soldiers want to kill the prisoners, but Paul's centurion friend Julius, who we talked about last time I was here, Julius saves Paul and all the prisoners. And the plan, I love this plan, if you can swim, jump out and go for shore. If you can't, wait for the boat to break up and then float in on the wreckage. Like, that's a great, that's a great pre-flight plan, right? Look, if we ever crash, if you can swim, go for it. But if not, just grab onto a piece of wreckage and you'll be all right. So that's the plan. It's a textbook landing, right? That's not what, that's not what it is. So, and here we are. And Paul washes up on the beach and immediately launches into a speech where he extols the virtues of motherhood. That would have been great for a Mother's Day sermon, but that's not what happened, everybody. No laughs on that. Gosh, I would have expected more laughs. Okay, no, Paul does not launch into a discourse about how awesome mothers are. That would have been good timing, but sometimes the timing of the passage doesn't match up with where we're at. Right, Brenda? That happens every once in a while. But um, so this is what he does. What, and it would have, so it's, but really what happens is, and as we pick up our story and as we've read the passage, what we realize is that Paul had set sail. They set sail too late. And so probably the time, you have to imagine this. So this has been stormy. They're in the Mediterranean. They're headed for this island of Malta. It's November. It's November. The average temperatures in Malta in November are 50 degrees, okay? And they're in the ocean 
swimming for shore. So that's where, that's where our passage <laughs> picks up. Can you, I mean, that, this is cold. And these guys, they haven't eaten for two weeks, remember? They're all seasick. Paul breaks bread, but they, all, the, all the like fat that's going to keep them warm, they've been, they've been, they haven't eaten for like two weeks, so they're cold, they're hungry, they're, it's really cold. I know some people have been to Malta, and, and they've seen it, but anyway, so, so a couple things about this. So it says in 28.1, after we were brought safely through, however you want to say safely, thank you, Lord, for a safe landing. That's not the, you know, a different definition of safe. We learned that the island was called Malta. And then it says, the native people showed us unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Malta. Malta is a small island. Um, just to get you a sense about how, what size this island is, Malta is 18 miles long and about 8 miles wide. Catalina Island is 22 miles long and 8 miles wide. So Catalina is a little bit larger than the island of Malta, all right? But about the same size, very similar. Um, and, not that, and like Catalina, not as many safe harbors as you might imagine here. Um, it says that, so, uh, and then it is 58 miles south of Sicily, so the boot of Italy, you've got Sicily is the ball that the boot is kicking. It's about 58 miles south of Sicily and about 150 miles, um, Africa is about 150 miles away. So Malta is actually was well known as a, a stopping point between tradesmen who are journeying from Africa to Italy, Malta would have been one of the stops along the way. As a matter of fact, it's due north of Tripoli. So Libya, due north, is Malta, and then you hit Sicily right there. You forget how close Africa and Europe are, but that's one of the things that Malta allows us to do. Humphrey Bogart as well, the Maltese Falcon. I did not, I did not watch that movie in preparation for this, but feel free to watch that this Mother's Day. All right, it goes on to say that it says the people, the native people. Now, I don't know about you, the ESV translates it as the native people. Does anybody have a different translation? The islanders. See, here's the thing about English translations. It makes it sound like a pretty exotic location, doesn't it? Like you, you imagine the islanders or like the, the, the natives on the island. It, the word there is actually, and this is, doesn't help either. The word there is the barbarians on the island. I mean, <laughs> you're like, well, are these grass skirts? Or is it long flowing hair? Ah, you know, barbarians are basically, the um, barbarians are people. If you're Jewish, the world is categorized into, into really people who spoke Hebrew and are Jewish, people who spoke Greek and are Jewish. Those, those are Jews. And then everyone else are Gentiles. If you don't speak Greek, you're a barbarian. Okay, that's how the world was divided. If you're a Greek person, it's really divided into people who speak Greek, because Greek's the best, if you know any Greeks out there, and then everybody who doesn't speak Greek, and that's barbarian. And the word barbar barbarian is, it's, um, it's onomatopoeia, um, barbar, like if you're, if you're saying people who doesn't, don't speak your language, you're like, they're just like, bar, 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 bar. That's how that word, okay, no extra charge this Mother's Day for this. I'm on a roll. I don't know if you guys are with me, but we're really moving this morning. Thank you, Jackie, appreciate that. Um, so the people of the island maybe is a better word. The residents of the island, it says, that they showed unusual kindness. They kindled a fire. They welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but these barbarians show unusual hospitality to these shipwrecked folks. 28.3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of heat and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. All right. Snakes. Snakes on Malta. Sounds like a, a movie, right? Snakes on Malta. Um, what type of a snake was it? Now, one, here's, before we get to the snake, what, what I love about this is Paul is out gathering firewood. I love that he washes up like, like he wrecks and he washes up on shore and then bare grill style, he's like gathering firewood for the fire. I think that's, there's always this question about what do you do, last time we talked about what do you do if you're on a ship bound for wreck, but now it's like what do you do if you wash up on shore shipwrecked somewhere? Look for firewood, okay? Firewood, he's going for firewood, but what type of a snake is this? As he's gathering this wood, um, he gets bit by a snake. Now, it could, the, the, the word here is the word echidna, which is translated as viper, usually implies a poisonous snake. And it certainly could have been a poisonous snake. There are a couple of um, uh, uh, varieties of snakes on the island of Malta that are constrictors. And this could have been a constrictor because it, it latches on and then it's hanging from his hand. So we don't know if it's like, <laughs> I mean, I always envision this like it, it, he just holds out his arm and there's a snake hanging off, right? Is that how you invite it? It could be though that it, 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 it bites him and then, it and then it's like one of those like little constrictors and it wraps around, something like that. We don't exactly know what it is. And actually today there are no poisonous species of snakes on the island of Malta. But that's, look, it's, that was 2,000 years ago. So there's a lot of things that could have happened between then and now. But all that to say... When the residents of the island see this, they're pagans. They're not Jews. They're not, they're, they're not, um, they are really reminiscent of the Greco-Roman world. And what they say is that, hey, and remember what we talked about, about sailors. Like, when you go out on the sea, you are tempting fate, are you not? Like, if you have some unconfessed sin in your life, this is a great time. If you're a pagan, it's a great time for the gods to visit vengeance upon you. And so as, as, these, as everybody, these 270-so people get washed up on the shore, and, and there's the, all these people are, are, well, are bringing them in and starting fires, they're like, I guess these people are living good lives, right? They're doing good. They, they've cheated death. They've cheated death in a shipwreck. But then there's this one guy, as he's gathering firewood, this poisonous snake gets him. They're like, well, not that guy unlucky, I guess, or that you're tempting fate, or that you are looking, in the ancient world, and this is what it says here, they say, um, decay must have gotten him. Justice, the, the goddess of justice, decay. She would be dispatched by Zeus. If somebody had done something wrong, Zeus would dispatch decay to visit vengeance upon someone. And they're basically like, hey, well, this guy made it through the storm. He made it through the shipwreck, but, his, but he couldn't make it past justice. And so, um, but then they, they watch him and they're like, they expect him to swell up. Like when you get bit by a poisonous snake, you would swell up in that area. Or they expect him to literally to fall over dead. That's what they're waiting to see happen. And after some time, Paul's like, 
What are you guys looking at? <laughs> right? Like, I don't even, but I don't know what Paul was thinking. Like, is Paul thinking, well, gosh, I've got to make it to Rome. Like, God is going to get me to, and I think that's the point of what Luke's doing here. Paul has to make it to Rome, and he will cheat death. He will enjoy divine protection. He will, there is no creature, there is no power, there is no force in the world that will, that will work against the will of God. God has purposed. He is my chosen instrument. And if God is going to do this, no one will step in the way. And if this is God's will, then Paul will indeed make it. He didn't swell up or pass out. I think one interesting thing here, the word for swell up, this is, I'm going to just go geek mode on you. Um, the word swell up, it's, this is, um, Luke is the only author in the Bible to use this term. And it's actually a fairly rare term. It's only found in medical journals, medical writings of the day, that it, it was a word for inflammation. And so this idea that Luke is a physician, this is one of the places you might go because this is a very rare medical term. They're waiting for him, and the, the word is, um, they're waiting for him, if I can find it here, um, pimprosthi, they're waiting for him to do that, and, but he doesn't. Um, and so this, this not-so-common medical term showing um, Luke's medical training here. So then they change their minds. And they say that he's a god. That happened earlier with, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas come, and they heal this guy. And the, 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 all the residents are like, well, it's Zeus and Hermes. And uh, they bring bulls to sacrifice to them. That doesn't happen here. But we see that this idea that Paul is recognized here. Paul is recognized that he is an emissary of the divine. And again, to show that Paul, it's clear, not only to Paul and his traveling companions, but also to the residents of the island, the pagans, the barbarians of the island, that Paul is enjoying divine protection. No evil force or creature will keep him from his appointed rounds, and divine providence has him destined to make it before Rome and to testify before the Roman emperor. God will not be thwarted, and Paul is God's chosen instrument, as we have already said. All right, let's look at verse 7. As we move off the snake bite and the wreckage, we see in verse 7 that there's, uh, there's another thing about divine providence, that God has landed them on this island for this unusual hospitality. Look at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Now, Publius, it says that he's the chief of the island, or the citizen, that again sounds to our ears. He's the chief citizen of the island. And he's probably someone that the Romans, uh, the governor of the area would be the governor of Sicily, and Malta was included on that, but they probably had someone who was wealthy and influential on the island that the Romans had constricted into leadership on the island, and Publius is probably this man. It, it says that he owns a lot of land and a big estate on the island, and so um, he hosts us. Now, who that includes is uncertain. There were 276 people on the boat. Uh, we don't know, and, and, and that those 276 people include lots of people. You've got the, the Roman uh, centurion, the soldiers, and the prisoners, but you also have all the, the tradesmen and the, the crew of the ship. You also have other people who book passage on this boat. So whatever it is, probably, and probably this idea that for three days, Publius offers 
just a landing spot for all these people who've come off the boat because they've come off the boat with nothing. They have no money. They have no extra clothes. I mean, they threw it all overboard, right? So now these three days is like, okay, and they're going to be here. It says they're going to be here for three months. So you can imagine this stage where it's like, okay, we're going to need lodging, but in order to get lodging, we got to work. So who can do this? Okay, you go this way. Who can do this? Like just to to get a sense of where they're going to live and how they're going to live for the next three months as they wait to get to Rome. It says in 28.8, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured. It says that the father of Publius was, had fever, was sick with dysentery. And um, there is actually on the island of Malta, there's something called um, Maltese fever, Malta fever. And in the 19th century, they, um, they realized and they discovered that it was transmitted through drinking goat's milk on the island. Maybe this is what he had. Whatever happened, Paul prays for him and lays hands on him. Crazy enough, this is the only time in the book of Acts where it talks about someone laying hands on someone to heal them of sickness. I know, that was a, that was a shocker to me as well. Um, but he does that, and the man is healed. Paul hears of his condition, goes in to pray for him, and lays his hands on him, and heals him. And as he's healed, the word gets out in verse 9, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And what ends up happening, this is is kind of an interesting thing too, because again, let's think about this idea that these three days are kind of this staging time where you've got all these people on this boat who are now going to be grafted into this community for the next three months. And there's a question about like, what's going to happen to Paul and his entourage? And it seems as though what they have to offer for this community is some kind of compassionate prayer and medical ministry. And here's how we, we arrive at that. Now, your translation, if you're reading the ESV, it says something like this, that um, when, let's see, when he, in verse 8, Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And the verb there, that verb is usually used to imply a full healing. Eosita, okay? He healed him. He, He brought him back to health. And it usually implies a divine, miraculous healing. But then when it says, in verse 9, the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured... This is the word therapeuo. We get our word therapy from it. And it doesn't always imply immediate healing. There are times where it implies immediately divine healing, but it's also used of someone that is undergoing medical treatment. And there's many scholars and commentators who believe that what happened after this is Paul heals this leading man's uh, father, and then word gets out, but also Luke is with him, who's a doctor, And so people from the island now, there's a new doctor on, there's a healing that's taken place, there's this compassionate prayer, there's this, it's like a medical clinic has opened up. 
And so people from all over the island come with their various ailments, and probably what is implied here in the writing is that it's a place where you could come and be prayed for, and maybe there were miraculous healings, but also it was a place where you could come and you could receive medical care from someone who was known as a physician, like Luke. And so it opens up this compassionate, and it, it's so, there's such a response to what happens. Look at the response in 28.10. It says, when they're about to leave three months later, they honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So people are cured, and then, but people are also just served compassionately and given medical attention. And when it says they, they honored us greatly, they honored with many honors, it probably implies that they gave monetary gifts. They provided for them monetarily. Again, they washed up on shore with nothing. Now they're going to Rome. They're going to need, these guys have been part of our community. They've loved us. They've prayed for us. We brought our sick to them. They've done their best to heal them and to offer cures medically and to treat them. We're going to give them some money, but we're also going to provide them whatever they need on board. It's going to be a multiple day journey. You're going to need food. You're going to need clothes. And so coming onto the island with literally nothing but the wet clothes on their back, if that, to now, three months later, they have offered this, this wonderful service to the community, and the community is now blessing them. All right, what does this mean? What do we, what do, we do with this passage? Why, why are we doing this on Mother's Day? And again, mothers, I wish. I wish he was like, and mothers are awesome. And then we could just riff off that all day long. But that's not what this passage is about. One thing about this section is we think about our own lives, okay? Just think about our own lives and this. Because I know you're going to shipwreck pretty, pretty soon. I'm just kidding. I don't know if you're going to shipwreck. I hope you don't. Safe travels to everybody. Godspeed, okay? But one of the things that is notably absent, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but Luke is not making this point, is everywhere else that Paul goes, he preaches the gospel. And Luke makes a big deal about that, right? That's what the book of Acts is about, testify, testify, bear witness of Jesus. Now, I would imagine that Paul and his traveling companions, they do worship, and they do bear witness. They're having a healing ministry, yeah. So you would imagine that they are bearing witness of Jesus, but one of the things so but one of the things that's absent about this is any kind of talk about well this person came to faith and this person came to faith maybe the idea that Publius's name is 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 actually named implies that he came to faith but we don't know what the reception of the gospel was on that on the island. What we do get is language from the Greco-Roman world that's language what we would call benefaction. It's language about friendship. And friendship in the ancient world, as it is today, is about this idea of someone comes to you, maybe as a stranger, you give hospitality to them. The people who are given hospitality return the favor in some kind of service or gift or something like that eventually. And then there's reciprocated. It's this idea of reciprocated gift. That's the idea of friendship. And though Luke is not talking about the giving and receiving of the gospel explicitly, and I would imagine that happens here, okay? I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But one thing that is really interesting here 
is that the, re- the reciprocal relationship of giving and receiving gifts, benefaction, is happening between Paul and his companions who are believers. And barbarians, pagans, the pagans who are like, hey, you're, you're, you're kind of like a divine God over there, you know, like these are pagans who are coming, so they, and, and I think this is the other thing, these are pagans who offer hospitality, Paul returns the favor with this prayer and, and, and medical ministry, and whatever else he does, maybe he tent makes, whatever he can do, he's got those skills, right? but then there's this reciprocal relationship of friendship and benefaction. Now, why is this significant? All right. Um, Sometimes you will hear that we as believers ought only to work in conjunction with other people who can sign our doctrinal statement. We should only partner in ministry with other people who share not only our faith in Jesus, but the essentials of our particular doctrine, of the specifics of our doctrine. Sometimes you'll hear that it's a little taboo to like reach across into people who don't share our faith and to offer that sort of work with them. And in the scholarly world, actually, this passage is actually pointed to as an example of believers, people who are following Jesus, entering into benefactor relationships, friendship is what it's called, with people who may or may not share their faith. You land on the island literally naked, and the pagans clothe you. Because that's a virtue in the ancient world. Hospitality is a virtue in the ancient world. Benefaction is also a virtue. And so Paul and his companions, they return the favor with whatever skills and gifts they have. And you see then, by the end of this time, there has been this rich relationship of giving and receiving of gifts among those who may or may not have responded to the gospel. And I think that for for me, and I think for us as a community, as we look at our own city and as we look at our own community, we want to be aware of what God is doing in our community, whether it is through other people of faith or whether it is through our own local barbarians. All right, you can laugh at that. I mean, we've got local barbarians, don't we? Whatever. You know, we, you know who I'm talking about? Like, whoever it is that might not share your faith, might not share your political leaning, might not share your sensibilities about everything, but God might be calling you into a friendship where there can be giving and receiving of whatever skills and gifts that God has blessed our community with. What do you do when you're shipwrecked in a strange land? You bring your gifts and your skills and you work in that community to make it a place 
that God is honored and that people's lives thrive. You bring your compassion. You make friends. To put it another way, to turn the tables a little bit. 276 people wash up on the beach by your house. They're all cold, they're all wet, and they're all starving. What do you do? In this political debate about the border and the southern border, there are lots of ways to talk about this, okay? And politically, there are lots of causes why there's a surge in migrancy, okay? But if we simply think about it as an issue, we will not be cultivating a heart of compassion. Because for me, I look at it on TV, and, and I, look, I, I, was, I was raised politically a certain way. I probably haven't gone too far off of that, okay? But I, I have a tendency to think about policy that might help. And it is a complicated issue. But when you have people standing in front of you, I have a different response. One thing, but if I have someone wet who... And you might be thinking that's an exaggeration. Look, on, on the island of Cyprus right now and in Greece, there are refugees coming over, risking their lives, coming from Syria. It's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. And we at our own southern border have the same thing. Now, look, it is a one side of the aisle or the other. But what I am here to say is that that ought to waken a heart of compassion. It ought to bring something out in us of compassion. Even the barbarians did it. They showed unusual hospitality. I'm not here to say Republican or Democrat, and this is a politically, look, this is politically charged and is very difficult. It's complicated. But what I'm saying as a pastor and as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, it ought to at least bring out a heart of compassion. At the very least. Now, I don't know where that goes, and it, like I said, it is a complicated issue. But whatever, wherever that goes for you in your life, in your neighborhood, it ought to start in a heart of compassion. Not the nemesis DK who's get everybody gets their just desserts. A heart of compassion. The believers here experience that kind of unusual hospitality. And what I want to encourage us to do is to simply say, God, will you build in me a heart of compassion? Before all other things, I, I, want, I want to be smart and I want to be effective politically. I want to, like if there's a way to solve a problem, I want to do that, but I want it to come out of a place. I want it to come out of a place where people would say, that person is willing to make friends. That person is willing to enter into benefaction, the giving and receiving of gifts. The offering, the word hospitality is the word love of men, philanthropia. It's also the word, it's also the phrase love of strangers, philoxenia. Hospitality in the New Testament is translated from these two words, love of man and love of stranger. 
It's not love of Aunt Sally who comes and sleeps on your couch at Christmas time. You know her. I don't know if you have an Aunt Sally. Okay. Love of stranger. And I want us to at least consider the idea that God has something for us, a gift to be given later if we develop a heart of compassion. That there is a promise, there is a promise of a gift to be given later if we cultivate a heart of compassion and a heart of hospitality. 